The scripture reading today comes from Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shijanith. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in the, still in their place in the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering sphere, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with your own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm John, one of the pastors. Thank you for putting up with a little bit of housekeeping there that we were doing. Um, we're in a series right now called A Cry for Renewal. And uh, for those of you, this is your first week or are newish here, there are, a lot, there are a lot of different ways of praying, and we've been looking in the book of Habakkuk about at some different ways of praying. One, you could call it lament, um, and lament really means to bring your complaints before God and to be really clear about the burdens that you have on your heart, but also especially about injustices you see in the world or apparent injustices. There's, so we have lament in this book. We also have a, there's a little section in chapter 2 of what you could call listening, where God says, look, I'm going to give you a vision, Habakkuk, and I need you to listen, and then I want you to write it down really clearly, and then I want you to run with it. This section that we're in today, I would call a little more longing. So it's different from lament. It's different from just listening to God. This is what you might call a longing for renewal. And every, what we're doing every week when we look at the text is really asking how can we learn a little bit more about how to pray before God and what might it look like for us individually or for us uh, corporately to pray. And the idea of re renewal here that we're talking about is the idea that there are seasons in history in which God moves in extra powerful ways, which is not to say he's not always working and always moving, he is, but there are times and seasons in which he does something dramatic. Um, in Chicago, 
the, the last probably full time that happened, and I'll say a little bit more about this, was, was when D.L. Moody was here and there were, there were lines around the block at Auditorium Theater at what is now um, Ida B. Wells and Wabash, all the way around the block, people waiting to get in to hear, the, to hear him preach the gospel. It was a kind of sense of renewal. And as you think about your own heart, are there, pla- are there places in your heart where you want to see God plant something new for something new to grow? Or as a church, is, it, is this a time in which we might ask God in longing to do something new? I'm just going to show you three components of renewal in this passage. Um, one is a prayer for renewal, which is in verses 1 and 2. It's very short. The second one is what I would call a vision for renewal. And there's a vision, it's called a theophany, actually, um, which means like a vision of God. There's a theophany that occurs in verses 3 through 15 where Habakkuk sees something very dramatic. It's, it's a vision of renewal. And, and part of my premise today is that we need a renewed vision of the greatness of God, of the majesty of God, of the holiness of God. And the last little part is uh, renewed humility. In verse 16, he's a changed person. We'll just kind of walk through the passage together, and I'll show you that. But uh, will you pray with me as we begin? Father in heaven, we thank you for this book that's been an adventure, this unlikely voice in in the Old Testament from Habakkuk and his uh, audacious prayers, his um, frizzy-haired complaining to you, God asking you, why you're so inactive in the world and why you don't do more. And, and sometimes we share those questions and share those complaints. So show us, God, a renewal of who you are in our day and in our age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Verses 1 and 2 uh, are this prayer for renewal. And you can think of it this way. It's, this is a lament-weary prophet. Okay, He's been complaining over and over. Or an or injustice weary prophet who is finally beginning to change from complaint to the cry for renewal. But essentially his prayer request is, God, I've heard some of the stuff you've done in the past, but I don't see it with my eyes today. In our day, renew it. That's, That's the basic prayer request. And it's what we can pray as well. We can say, God, um, you, some of you may have a grandmother that was very influential in your life and was always a part of praying and always seeing things happen, and that's maybe not your experience, but this is saying, in this next generation, God, would you do something that is unique? Verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth, which is an untranslatable term, so we don't really know what that means, but it's a, some kind of uh, aspect of musical cadence. Before, what's happened in the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's wanted to see God work against wickedness, and he's cried out to God, this is in chapter 1, and he says, God, how long am I going to cry for help and you don't hear, or cry violence and you don't save? And what he's, what he's experiencing in, this is in, in about 609 B.C., so thousands of years ago, but in Judah, the people were being very wicked at that time, and especially the king, this is probably King Jehoiakim, was, was especially wicked, and he's saying that people are being oppressed in our country, his country, Judah, and 
you're not doing anything, God. How come you're not doing anything? And God gives this answer in chapter 1, verse 6, and says, you know what, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't even believe it if, if I told you what it is. But what he says he's going to do is to raise up a more wicked people to blot out wickedness. And so his next complaint is, how could you, as a holy God, as an eternal God, as our rock, send a wicked people to crush wickedness? And I kind of wish that the answer would just come up in the book, like God doesn't have that many instruments to work with that are not wicked. That is, most of, most of us have wickedness within, it, within our hearts. So what happens in this passage is it's almost as if God says, I'm going to do the deliverance myself. <laughs> if somebody's got to go and deal with wickedness, then, then God says, let me go. And there's a, there's a little phrase that we have in, this, in, in verse 2 where it says, where Habakkuk says, in the midst of years, make it known, that is, renew what you're doing, but in wrath, remember mercy. And the American concept of God is probably a kind of gentle, you know, grandfatherly-like figure. The Old Testament picture of God, the Hebrew image of God, is very wrathful. And Habakkuk's just been praying for God to do something. And so here he's saying, could you please, if you do come, could you please remember mercy? Um, I mentioned that Chicago has seen remarkable days in the past. There was a revival that I've mentioned many times, but it was called the Revival of 1858. 1859, it started in New York. A businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere started praying. And uh, James Edwin Orr, who's like a, he's a scholar on revival, has a, you probably can find this on YouTube. It's worth watching. If you Google James Edwin Orr on, on uh, revival, he talks about how what happened in 1858, 1859, Jeremiah Lamphere and six other people started praying, and they met every day for prayer. By February of 1858, every church in New York was praying. In that season, there was so much revival that 10,000 people were repenting and coming to know Christ, being converted every week in New York at the time. And James Edwin Orr and other revival scholars say that it's actually, that's what happened in Chicago in 1858, 1859, and, and Philadelphia and cities all over North America, is that what the prayer revival that started in New York spread throughout all of the United States, and, and really D.L. Moody's ministry kind of got birthed out of that, and it's part of the reason why I saw so many people coming to know Christ. So really, um, my first application is just commit yourself to praying for renewal, right? That it's pretty simple, but we need God to work again in our day. There's, it's hard not to be concerned with the corruption and violence and wickedness in our world today, but we need a new outpouring of God and the Holy Spirit in our day. H.B. Charles has a book called It Happens After Prayer, and uh, he basically just says prayer matters because it works. So, like, let's be a people of prayer. So the first element of renewal from Habakkuk 3, 1 to 16 is this um, renewed prayer or prayers for renewal. The second aspect of renewal in this text is a new vision of God as a basis for renewal. So I, I'm one of those people who believes you should pray for everything. 
I'm very, there are people who say you should never pray for a parking space because God doesn't care whether you get that parking space or not. I'm like, no, he does. And that person will get the parking space if I, I'm teasing. But, but I do believe that, that our life and language with God as little children is he's okay with us bringing everything before him. But he also is a great and majestic God. So when you think of when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, he says, say, our Father, because he's our Father, but he's our Father who is in heaven as well. And what you get in, in this section is not a very fatherly picture of God, but a, a, it's the heavenly picture of God. It's the holy picture of God in this text. Look at what it says in verses 3 to 6. It says, Then God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah, which is another kind of musical phrase. There's three of those remarks here, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Some scholars think well, Teman and, and Mount Paran are a little bit south, um, but some scholars say that they're also a little, that, that because they're a little bit east, this is like seeing um, the sunrise. And it's almost as if God is being personified as the sun, so to speak. And he's rising with this tremendous uh, vision of light. There's a ritual in sports that uh, has to do with the fanfare of introducing two teams. And some of you are football players here. Or some of you watch football games when you're in high school. And you remember they make like those big paper rings. And then you know one team like busts through that. And, you know, there's all this, all this fanfare in, in, on the professional level. The Chicago Bulls, actually, I saw an article this week. They were sort of the first people to make the fanfare at the beginning of the game a really big production and moved it from 48 minutes of sport to, like, all of these lights and things like that. So if you've ever been, you'll, rem you, you'll know that, and now... I don't, I, I'm not going to really try to do it, but it's amazing, and it's like there's, it's like the whole United Center is throbbing with energy and excitement, and lights are shooting everywhere. It's like this big production. It's um, a little bit like in boxing. It's like, and now in this corner, what's happening here is God is about to face off with his enemies, and the only way that the the that Habakkuk, or that it can be described to watch God facing off with his enemies, is with light and um, really all of creation kind of throbbing and convulsing at the terrifying idea of God coming. You could label this whole section, verses 3 to 15, you could just call it when God shows up. When God shows up. Imagine what would happen if God showed up in his physical manifestation in this room. Imagine back to Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai. People couldn't even go up to the mountain and touch the mountain because they would die because the holiness in the presence of God was so strong. So this vision that Habakkuk has here is a way of announcing God coming on the earth, if, if, uh, if this section could be, you know, when God shows up, it's actually, there's sort of three scenes to it. First of all, God shows up in verses three to eight, and the earth is just like shaking. And then in verses nine through uh, 11, God shows up 
and he starts to clothe himself for war. And then he defeats his enemies, the third little section. Uh, to use another analogy, I don't think you need one more, but this is, like, this is like in the Western. At the beginning of a Western, you know, one of the guys like pushes through these swinging doors on the bar and kind of staggers out or strides out, and then it starts to focus on the weapons, and then the battle begins. That's what's happening here. But it's what would it look like if God was doing battle? So God shows up is what happens first. Verse 4 says, His brightness was the light. Rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. It's going to point out, as we start to walk through this, that um, in Hebrew poetry, maybe you know this already, but it, the end of the line doesn't rhyme like in English poetry, but the images rhyme, so to speak. So there's multiple restatements. It's called, um, it's called poetic parallelism. So if you look at verse 4, it says, His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Verse 5 says, Before him went pestilence, and plagues followed at his heels. So it's this picture of like a wake behind God that's so terrifying. It's like a plague, and plagues in, in the Old Testament are like, they're statements of judgment. They are judgment upon the earth. This is why Habakkuk is saying, God, in your wrath, Remember mercy. Verse 6 mentions earths, that the earth and nations and mountains and hills. And the idea here is there, there are times in the Bible, for instance, Psalm 98, which is uh, from the, the place, the psalm that we get um, a Christmas carol from, uh, let heaven and nature sing. And uh, his praise is going to ring as far as the curse is found. It talks about the heavens... It talks about trees clapping and mountains like rejoicing. That's not what's happening here. Here, they're shuddering. Look at verse 6. It says, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. It, what, what Habakkuk is seeing is this vision that God is so awful in one sense, so holy, that the mountains run away, that the hills like sink low and try to hide themselves. And so I'll just ask, do you need a renewed vision of God? J.B. Brooks wrote a small book some time ago called Your God is Too Small. And sometimes we just shrink God down to being this one that we pray to who will do whatever we want to. And Habakkuk is learning, no, I cannot put God in a box. When God shows up, the earth shake. The earth shakes. This is a, a vision of God kind of beginning to walk through the earth. And when it says, uh, when it mentions Cush and Midian in affliction and trembling, the idea is not that God is attacking those nations, it's that they're adjacent nations from where God is arising, and they are so aware of his presence that they're sort of shaking in his presence. Conor McGregor is one of the best MMA fighters, and he has this like they call it his billionaire strut. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but it's, his, it's his little strut that he does to show how tough he is sort of when he's in the ring. And he is a pretty tough guy. He's lost a number of matches recently. But what, what, what the author is doing is showing what it would look like if the creator of all the universe were to, were to take stand and strut throughout the earth that the whole earth would react. God shows up in verses 1 to 8, but then in verses 9 to 11, 
you see God starting to arm himself for war. If verses 1 to 8 are the shuddering of the earth at the coming of God, verses 9 to 11 show what it looks like and what his weapons are. He's ready for battle. God is armed. And so what's happening here is before Habakkuk was praying that God would do something against the wicked, and then he asked God at the end of verse at the end of uh, chapter 1 he says are the is the wicked just going to keep on mercilessly killing forever and this is God's answer no god is saying i'm going to arm myself against the wicked and if you put it in the context of Sully's great sermon last week it's a picture last week was a picture of everyone that was has been oppressed everyone who's been abused rising up at the judgment of God and saying, woe. And that's what's being pictured here now is those, it's so, in some ways this is so terrifying, it's hard for us to process it. Modern people have a really hard time thinking of God as a warrior. We like to think of God as a gentle shepherd. The Lord is my Shepherd, I shall not want. But part of the picture, and I'm not writing this, I'm just trying to explain it, is there is an aspect of seeing God as a warrior who will come in judgment, who will take up weapons. Look at the weapons in verse 9. You stripped the sheath from your bow. You got a sheath, you got bow, you got arrows. (laughs) And then nature reacting again. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and it lifted its hands on high. The, uh, the, it's, if you, it'd be interesting to ask whether or not this is in the past tense. or the, Did this already happen or is this going to happen? It's interesting because it's what you might call a prophetic past tense. So imagine you had a dream and you wake up and tell someone a dream You'd, you'd like tell it in the past tense, and then I went in this room and this happened. He's telling it in the past tense, but it's something that he's experiencing as he's seeing it and something that's going to happen in the future. In other words, this is when God in chapter 2 says, write down the vision and wait. It's going to, it's going to be fulfilled. This is the vision that he wrote down, the vision of God coming. When God shows up in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, he tells Habakkuk that, in, that a life-altering vision is coming and that Habakkuk is to wait for it. And so the, the, uh, the waiting for it really is the waiting for this, this day of judgment that will come. So God shows up and he arms himself for war, and then look at verse 12, he defeats his enemies. It says, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the, the nations in, in anger. We still haven't seen the mercy part. The question is, why is God rising up here? Why is he really rising up here? You could put it this way, that God, the warrior, rises up with one purpose here, to crush the head of wickedness, to crush the head of the evil one. That's what it says in verse 13. 
Again, this is like a vision of what's going to happen from his perspective in the future. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. The biblical commenters say this is like imagery of like a sea monster being crushed on his head. But it's a picture of victory. It's a picture of God securing victory for his Old Testament people in Judah, but also for us as well. What's happening here is the Chaldeans, the, the vision of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians being crushed is taking on this kind of epic proportions, a little bit like the beginning of, of a bull's before a Bulls game where, I don't know if you've actually ever seen that, but like the bull, there's on the large screen, these bulls come like galloping out and they're like running down Michigan Avenue and then they're running towards um, towards the United Center. And it's, you have, it's, they're not, it's not actually the Chicago Bulls, but it's inspiring and it's a little bit frightening if it were real. And that's the imagery here, is of God as a warrior coming to, secure the salvation of his people. It's well known in warfare that if you want to win a war, one of the ways to do it is to take out the leader, take out the head person, and that's what's happening here. Verse 14, admittedly this is brutal imagery, but it says, you pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter, to, to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, and then you trampled, this is like God riding away in victory, you trampled the sea with your horses with the surging of mighty waters. You can't really even take it all in. <laughs> but that's why the, the second point really is that we need an enlarged vision of who God is, an enlarged vision of his majesty, an enlarged vision of his glory. You could put it this way, the vision of God judging the wicked is going to shake the earth. It's going to shatter his enemies and it's going to save his elect. That's a very particular word that I'm using there, but the word in the passage where it speaks of the one who is, why does all of this happen? It happens so that he can save, verse 13, his anointed. And the idea of the anointed goes back to, to David, for instance, when he had oil poured on his head, when the Holy Spirit came down upon him. But that was extended to all of God's people. All of Abraham's people were called his anointed ones or his chosen ones. And then it's extended. The promises that were given to Abraham are extended to the whole earth so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. What's incredible about this passage, I'll, I'll put it this way, is that it has multiple horizons of fulfillment. When you're driving to Colorado and you start to see the mountains for the first time or to Tennessee and you see the blue mountains for the first time, you, you, don't, you can't tell how far away they are from each other. You see like one ridge there and another ridge there. That's what prophecy is like in the Old Testament. There's multiple, you could call it horizons of fulfillment, and the first horizon of fulfillment is when the Babylonians are going to get crushed. The final horizon of fulfillment is when Christ will return, but the middle horizon is what, what Christ does upon the cross for us. So even though it's really subtle, 
there's some incredible theological language in this passage. And I'm just going to show you, make a couple of observations. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. The word anointed there is, is Mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah from. So this is also a picture of God. With Christ upon the cross, pouring out his wrath upon Christ, and then calling him back to life. And in fact, the, the word salvation there is as close to the word for Jesus as you can get. Yesh, Yeshu. So Jesus' name literally means the Lord saves. So from a what you might call a Christological perspective, yes, God's going to put an end to wickedness when he crushes the Babylonians. But he's really going to center his saving act of when Christ is upon the cross. In fact, the language again, here's two quick references where it says to crush the head of the wicked. This is what, this is what Habakkuk was asking God, when are, you going to, when are you going to destroy the wicked? It goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3.15. When God curses the serpent, he says one day the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. <laughs> and now in this vision, God says, I will one day crush his head. In Romans 16, 20, there's an amazing promise that says, and soon the God of all peace will crush the head of Satan under your feet, which is a way of saying that the church can be so secure in Jesus's triumph over sin and Satan and death that it's as if he's already crushed Satan under our feet. There's one other little thing I'll show you here that's really interesting in this passage, which is that it says also that he crushed the head of the wicked, and then verse 14 says, he pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. In other words, he takes the weapon of the wicked one and he uses it against him. And when we get to heaven, we can ask God if this is really what it means, but I'll just tell you one aspect of this, this that amazes me. If you think about the wicked one, Satan, if you think about the worst weapon that he has, you could say it's deceptiveness, it's, it's temptation, or you could say it's killing, it's death. If Satan's best weapon is killing, Jesus' best weapon is dying. So the way that death is defeated is by the Son of God dying. So this vision that Habakkuk has of the renewed holiness of God coming has a precision of power that actually points to the cross and his defeating all of our enemies. Sin, death, the wrath of God, and Satan upon the cross. So, Oh God, give us renewal in our day. Give us renewal in our hearts, but give us a renewed sense of your holiness and your majesty and a renewed sense of our own sinfulness, our own need for the saving work of Christ in our lives. And then give us a renewed sense, verse 16, of humility. 
This is more than humility, it's terror. <laughs> it's kind of like this, that if the, if the earth shakes when God comes in his wrath, how would humanity respond? How would Habakkuk respond? He's lost control of his bodily functions and his faculties. He says, verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What he pictures is the day when the Chaldeans will be defeated, when the day of justice has fully come. And part of the argument of this book has been, if God could raise up the Chaldeans, he could also raise up the Christ. He can also raise up his anointed one. What I want to just charge you with as we come to a close is a couple, a couple words of, of challenge for you. One is to seek a bigger vision of God and his holiness. Not to put God in a box. Two is for those who are weary, lamenting. Know that God will one day bring about his earth-shaking justice. He will. He, if the earth shakes, his enemies will be shattered and his elect will be saved. And then the last thing I'll say is that we have to wait for the final victory. Like it's, it's not, we don't, we're living the already and the not yet. It has not fully come. When the Welsh revival hit Wales, Evan Roberts prayed, oh God, bend me. And then uh, somebody else prayed, oh God, bend us. And uh, during that revival, 100,000 people were converted through it. Social impact was astounding. Judges didn't have anything to judge. Emergency meetings were done with the police because they didn't have anything to do anymore. Drunkenness was cut in half. Um, so many Welsh miners were converted that the horses couldn't understand the miners anymore because they were so used to profanity-laden commands that they didn't understand anymore. That's humorous, isn't it? But that's a small mark of what God does in revival. Let's cry out for God for continued renewal in our hearts, in our congregation, in our city, and our country. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your saving work was done to deliver the elect, to save us, and that through faith in you, in wrath you have remembered mercy, that on the cross, wrath and mercy were mingled together. And we pray that we might taste and see again your mercy, even as we see judgment and salvation mingled together. We pray for this church, for our congregation, Lord, for the people who are here. Plant a new seed. Do a new work. We've heard about the stuff that you've done in the past. In our day, Lord, renew your work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.